time we were together and our series in Christology. Uh, remember, Christology is the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if there's anything that we are to know as Christians, it is an understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And last time we were together, we considered what is called the active obedience of Jesus Christ. The active obedience of Jesus Christ. And when we speak of the active obedience of Jesus Christ, we are simply trying to answer this one question. How are we saved in Christ? How are we saved in Christ? In fact, if one was to ask, how are you saved in Christ? Or how do you stand righteously before God? God is a righteous one. Well, how can you stand righteously before God? And the common answer of the day is, I am saved in Christ by the death of Christ. Or, I stand before a righteous God, innocent of all charges because Jesus Christ died for me. And it's a shame that that is the common answer of the day. Now, I'm not denying that what Jesus Christ has done for us is uh, sufficient. The death of Jesus Christ is an important aspect of the work of Christ. But rather than saying how I'm saved in Christ and saying, well, it's simply the death of Christ, we should add that we are saved because Jesus lived for me. We are saved by the life and the death of Jesus Christ. How is one justified before a righteous God? Well, it's not by one simply dying for you, but rather it's by one living for you. We likened it to one being, one having a, a, a bank account. And in Adam, we all had a bank account, which was a, a we had a negative balance in Adam. Uh, our sin caused us to have a negative balance. Well, what the death of Jesus Christ does for us, it, it removes that negative balance. And he brings us back to a zero balance. But as I, we said a couple of weeks ago, that though, having a zero balance, doesn't get you into heaven. You need to have a righteousness. You had to have a, a positive balance in your bank account. And that positive balance is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So in order to stand before a righteous God, you have to be righteous yourself. Well, how do you get righteousness that's not of your own? You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Belief in Jesus Christ is what merits us a righteousness that is not of our own. So when we think about the active obedience of Christ... One of the things that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago that we're going to speak about this week and next week is we say that we are justified or that Jesus Christ lives for us and does for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's a common phrase in Christianity, that Jesus lives the life that you could not live. We've all heard that. We've said it ourselves in prayers or talking to others. But what do we actually mean when we say Jesus lives for us, that he lives the life that we could not live? 
Well, what we simply mean is Jesus lives a life of complete obedience to the law of God. That Jesus Christ lives a life of complete obedience, thereby fulfilling the law of God. And that's what we want to talk about this evening is what is the relationship between the law and the work of Jesus Christ? If there is one thing that we need so desperately in order for us to have a right standing before God, it is for us to live righteously to God's holy law. And when we consider the relationship between the law and Jesus Christ, there are two passages of Scripture that come to mind. Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that he has come to fulfill the law. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see that there is a direct uh, correlation between us being adopted as sons and the law being fulfilled. So, Let's ask, what is the law of God? What are we talking about when we say Jesus fulfilled the law for us? Well, first we have to ask, what is the law of God? Hercules Collins says in his Orthodox Catechism, question, what is the law of God? Answer, the Decalogue or Ten Commandments. What is the law of God? The answer, the Decalogue, which is another word for the Ten Commandments. Now, Does that mean that the law of God is only the Ten Commandments? Of course not. There are more laws other than the Ten Commandments, and Hercules Collins knows that. But if we were to um, boil down the, 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 the law of God to its bare essentials, it is the Ten Commandments. Now, those other laws that are a part of the Ten Commandments are what is called positive laws positive laws. So you have moral laws, and then you have these positive laws. And positive laws are those laws that are added to the moral law, but are not necessarily inherently moral themselves. So let me give you an example. Does everyone uh, who is human, or by the sheer fact that they exist, are they obligated to obey the Ten Commandments? Yes. All humans are obligated to obey the Ten Commandments. But are all humans obligated to be baptized? No. Are all humans obligated to partake of the Lord's Supper? No. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are what is called positive laws because they are not universally binding on all men. Not all people have to, nor do we want all people to uh, take the Lord's Supper. We would love all people to be baptized, but it's not required of them to be baptized. However, it's required of them to um, not steal. It's required of them not to uh, take the Lord's name in vain. 
It's required of them not to murder. So there is a distinction within the law of God. There are moral laws, and then there are positive laws. Okay? But again, if we were to strip down the law of God to its bare essentials, it would be the Ten Commandments. And that is what we were talking about this evening. We're not going to talk about necessarily how Jesus Christ fulfills the positive laws or the typological laws, but we're going to talk about how Jesus Christ fulfills the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. Now, we have to ask, what is so special about the Ten Commandments? What is unique about the Ten Commandments? Well, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is unique because it is a reflection of God's moral character. Again, why is the Ten Commandments, why is the moral law unique? Because it reflects God's character. Think about some of the Ten Commandments for a second. The Ninth Commandment says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And this reflects our God perfectly because our God doesn't lie. The third commandment says, you shall not make no idols. We know from scripture that God is spirit. And any image of him violates the third commandment. The first commandment says, you shall not have no other gods before me. God says in Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And we can do the deed and look at every commandment and see God's moral character on display. What we see in the Ten Commandments is these moral principles. The Ten Commandments, the moral principles, are grounded in the character of God. They reflect who our God is. But we see another reason why the law of God is unique and special. Because it reflects who our God is, but also... The moral law or the Ten Commandments are, is what's binding on all men. It's binding on all men. And what I mean by that is the Ten Commandments is what all men and women are obligated to obey. The Ten Commandments are what all men and women are obligated to obey. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're obligated to obey the Ten Commandments. And now, why is it so? Why are all men obligated to obey the Ten Commandments? Because all men and women are created in the image of God. Since we are all created in God's image, then we must obey His holy law. Our confession in chapter 19, paragraph 5, sums this up best. He says, The moral law does forever bind all as well as justified persons as others to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God, the creator who gave it. So you have to obey the law, not simply because it's law, but because it's God's law. All men from all ages are required to obey God's moral law. Now, how do we know this? Why is it that all mankind owe obedience to God? Well, because we are created in the image of God, and we know that because the Ten Commandments, the moral law, is the law that was written on the heart of Adam in the garden. The Ten Commandments is what was written on the heart of Adam in the garden. Again, our confession says in chapter 19, paragraph 1, 
God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart. A law of universal obedience that all men are to obey was written on the heart of Adam. They say in paragraph 2, the same law that was first written in the heart of Adam, the Ten Commandments, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God by Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments and written in two tablets, and the first containing our duties toward God, the other six our duty toward man. So we see the moral law, the Ten Commandments, was the law that Adam was to obey in the garden. Now, of course, there were other things that Adam was to do. But primarily, Adam was to obey the moral law in order for him to merit eternal life. Now, friends, this is important because there are many who believe that the Ten Commandments weren't written on the heart of Adam. In fact, the Ten Commandments uh, first make its appearance at Mount Sinai when Moses gave the law to Israel. It's a common objection of the day. Well, we don't see explicitly stated that the law of God was written on the heart of Adam, but we see it explicitly stated at Mount Sinai when God gave, or when Moses gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. The problem with that type of argument is murder doesn't become murder until the law is given in its formal sense. That's one of the problems with if you say that the Ten Commandments were first appear when Moses gives the law, but rather the Ten Commandments finds its origins in creation itself. It finds its origins in the garden. There are some who believe that the Ten Commandments were only for the nation of Israel. You might have heard that before. Only the, only the Jews are required to obey the Ten Commandments. Well, this was refuted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Gentiles don't formally have the law in written code, but they have the law written on their heart because they are created in God's image. The Apostle Paul goes on and says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. All men are created in the image of God, and because we are created in the image of God, we have the law of God written on our heart. The law of God is not just for Israel. It's for Gentiles. It's for every single person. So, and as we study the first three chapters of Genesis, we see that the law played an important role in God's relationship to Adam. We know that in the garden, God imposed a covenant upon Adam, which is called the covenant of works. And the thesis statement of the covenant of works is simply this. Do this and live. Do this and live. Adam was to do something in order to merit or earn something. Well, what is Adam to do? Well, he was to do a lot of things. But primarily, he was to obey God's moral law. And if Adam was to obey God's moral law, there was a lot of rewards that would be given to him. But the primary reward would be eternal life. He would move from a mutable state of existence to an immutable state of existence. He would have the beatific vision. He would merit for himself, but also for all of his progeny, the right to eternal life. And when we say 
eternal life. That's not something that we are to uh, uh, take lightly. Because all people are going to live forever. People in hell and people in heaven are going to live forever. But what Adam was to earn, and when we say eternal life, what we mean by that is a life lived with God. A life where we see God face to face. And friends, this is what Adam was to earn if he was to obey the moral law of God. And we know that when Adam sinned, he lost not only the right to eternal life, but we lost our relationship with God. Because Adam, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Because of Adam, our bank account is now at a negative balance. Friends, none of us can live perfectly to God's law because we all are sinners. You see, in the garden, the law was to be a friend to Adam. It was to teach Adam how to live righteously to God. But when Adam sinned, the law was no longer Adam's friend, but rather the law was Adam's curse. For the law, while teaching us holiness, reminds us of our sins. The Ten Commandments teach us how to live a holy life, but more than that, it teaches us how sinful we really are. It constantly shows us how unrighteous we are. St. Paul says in Galatians 3.23 that we are held captive to the law. So as sinners in Adam, and hear me now, as sinners in Adam, the law, although it is good, because we are sinners doesn't mean that the law is not good. The law is good because it reflects the God who is altogether good. But in Adam, the law in many ways is our nightmare. And the reason is because the law tells us that we cannot and we will never be able to obey it. That is why it is a curse for us, because it is constantly telling us, ha ha, you can't do this. Friends, in Adam, we are hopeless. For the law in Adam requires two things of us. First, the penalty for sin must be paid in full. The penalty for disobedience to the law is death. But secondly, the law requires perfect obedience. When Adam sinned in the garden, God did not sweep his law under the rug, but we are still bound to keep his law. But the problem is that none of us can both internally nor externally obey it let alone fulfill it. So in Adam, us being sinners, the law requires two things from you, saint. It requires death, but also it requires perfect obedience. Neither one could you properly do. You can't offer yourself up to die because you are not a spotless person. You are a sinner. And also, too, you cannot offer perfect obedience to the law because you are a sinner, so you're doomed either way. This is where Jesus Christ comes into the picture. Not only does the law show us our sin, but also the law shows us our need for a Savior. The law, while showing us our sin, friends, it also shows us the one who has come to fulfill the law on our behalf. And that's the, that's the, the greatness of the law. That's someone who could do what we could not do, and that is offer perfect obedience to God's moral law in order that we might have a right standing before God. And it is the God-man, Jesus Christ, who offers such obedience 
to God's law. Now, there are many questions that arise when we think about Christ's obedience to the law of God. Many debates that have happened throughout church history. And two questions that I want you to consider is number one, because all humans are bound to obey God's law, does that mean that Jesus was obligated to obey God's law? Again, because all humans are obligated to obey God's law, and we know that Jesus Christ took on a true human nature, does that mean that he was bound to keep the law? Was he obligated, like we are obligated to keep the law? And the second is this. Did Jesus obey the law for himself or on the behalf of his people? Those are two big questions that happened, uh, that came about in the 16th century, in the 17th century. The answer to the first question, because all humans are bound to keep God's law, and since Jesus took on a true human nature, does that mean that he is bound to keep the law like we are bound to keep the law? The answer is no. Jesus Christ was not obligated to obey God's law. And the logic behind the reason is this, that although Jesus Christ possessed a true human nature, we have to remember that Jesus Christ is a divine person. Because Jesus Christ took on a true human nature, we must remember that he is the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus Christ is the God-man, not the man-God. He is God in the flesh. He's not a human who just has divine attributes, but he is divine himself. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And because his human nature, hear me here, because his human nature was united to his divine person, he was not bound to keep God's law like you and I are bound to keep God's law. Daniel Featley, uh, one of the members of the Westminster Assembly, says this, that Christ, in regard of his hypostatic union, was freed from all obligation to the law, which otherwise had laid upon him if he had been a mere man. Simply put, if Jesus was merely a man and not truly divine, then yes, he would be obligated to keep the law. But because he is God in the flesh... He is not obligated to keep the law. Herman Bavink sums this up well. He says, The obedience that Christ uh, accorded to the law, therefore, was totally voluntary. Again, the obedience that Christ accorded to the law, therefore, was totally voluntary. It was an act of voluntary condescension on Christ's part to obey the law on our behalf. Mark Jones expands on this quote well. He says, uh, Christ, being made under the law, was not, was not an ontological necessity, but a functional necessity. And what he means by this is this. We as humans, because we exist, are obligated to keep the law. By the sheer fact of our existence as humans, we are obligated to keep the law. That's not so with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, it was not of ontological necessity, but of functional necessity. Because he is the mediator, he is bound to keep the law. And hear what he says here. Its necessity is tied to the pre-temporal covenant agreement 
Christ's law-keeping is therefore according to the terms of the covenant which were entered unto freely on the Son's part. What he means is this. Jesus Christ is not obligated to keep the law because he took on a true human nature. But Jesus Christ is obligated to keep the law because that is the obligation that the Father gave to him in the covenant of redemption. You see, we are obligated to keep the law because we are human. Jesus is obligated to keep the law because that is one of the conditions that the Father gave to the Son in the covenant of redemption. And friends, in light of all the things that I'm saying, this is the beauty of it. That Jesus Christ was under no obligation to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He didn't have to, in other words. But he did so freely and voluntarily for you. He'd have to do one thing because he wasn't obligated to do one thing because he is the God-man. But the beauty of all this is that Jesus does so on our behalf because he loves us that much. It's one thing to do something because you have to do it by the sheer fact that you exist. But it's another thing to do something because you love those whom you are doing it for. Friends, when we think about the life that Christ offered up to uh, God's moral law, but also his ceremonial law, we see that he lived a life of complete obedience even when he was an infant babe. We read in, John, in Luke 2, verses 21 to 24, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to the offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What we see here is that eight days, Jesus was already obeying the law of God. At eight days, Jesus was circumcised according to the law. One theologian says, Christ took the sign to himself as a boy to fulfill the demands of the law and to have a constant reminder that he was the one who would bear the curse of the law for his people. At eight days old, we see our Savior, Jesus Christ, fulfilling the law. He fulfills the ceremonial law which was circumcision for males at eight days old. But not only was Jesus circumcised, but at 40 days, Jesus was brought into the temple and was presented to the Lord according to the custom of the law. Mary came and sacrificed to set apart her son to the Lord. Isaac Ambrose captured this idea well when he wrote, uh, there was no impurity in the son of God, and yet he is first circumcised. There was nothing found impure in baby Jesus, but he's still circumcised. And then he was brought and offered to the Lord. And that uh, he that came to be sin for us would in our persons be legally unclean. That by satisfying the law, he might take away our uncleanness. What we see is from the very moment of infancy, our Lord was fulfilling the law of God. But that's just 
the ceremonial or typological uh, use of the law? What about the moral law of God? How does Christ fulfill the moral law of God? Well, Francis Chiriton says plainly, Christ fulfills the law not by addition or correction, but by observation and execution. Christ fulfills the law not by addition or correction, but by observation and execution. And how was one to properly observe the law? By loving God and loving his neighbor. That is how one obeys the law fully. That is how one fulfills the law. And when we look at the life of Christ, we see his obedience to the Ten Commandments on full display. So as we come to a close, I want us to consider and see how Christ obeys and fulfills each one of the Ten Commandments. And we're going to do this really quickly. But the first commandment says this. I am the Lord your God. And men who are doing liturgy, uh, take notes. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What we see here is Jesus and his life never put another god before his father. He loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. He feared God. He believed God. And he trusted in his father alone. In fact, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness to bow down and worship him, what did Christ say to Satan? It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The second, the second commandment says, you shall not make yourself, uh, for yourself an idol, whether in form or anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. No one in history past, present, or future, ever offered pure worship to God like Christ did. In John 4:22, he condemned false worship. He warned the Pharisees that the essence of their hypocrisy was drawing near to God with their lips, but having their hearts far from him. Christ, on the other hand, offered true spiritual worship to his Father, both externally and internally. The third commandment says, You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. I think this is one commandment that even Christians are to consider and study. But Jesus never took the name of the Lord his God in vain. He never said, God dang it, forgive me Lord, but he never said that. Or God the other language. He never said, Jesus or God. He never took the Lord's name in vain. He says in John 12:49 that he only speaks the words of his Father. Jesus never took the name of the Lord in vain, but he only spoke the truth about the Father. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And in spite of many people want to say about this commandment and Christ's relationship to his commandments, this commandment, Jesus Christ never, ever, 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 ever times infinity violated the Sabbath day. But he upheld it and observed it. In fact, Jesus Christ, it was, was truly a Sabbatarian at heart. Luke 4, uh, 16 says it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He never missed a service. He did works of piety. 
He did works of mercy. He did works of necessity on the Sabbath and showed in his person and work and by example how one is to properly observe the Sabbath day. Let me say this, friends. Jesus Christ loved the Lord's day. He loved the Sabbath day because he knew that each and every Sabbath day is a day with his God. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. We see this in the life of Christ. He perfectly honored his mother, but also his legal father. He submitted himself to care as a boy. We see in scripture that Jesus obeyed his earthly parents, but more than that, Jesus always did what his heavenly father told him. And friends, or young ones, even me, think about your obedience to your father and mother. And think about the relationship that you have with your father and mother or those who are your guardians. You are to offer the same obedience to them as you offer to your father in heaven. Jesus did so. His submission to his earthly parents was a reflection of his submission to his heavenly father. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Jesus always promoted and preserved life. He was meek and gentle and he was kind to all. He was compassionate while he was on earth. He healed the sick. He made the blind see and the crippled walk. But more than that, Jesus saved his people from their sin. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus never lusted after a woman. And I've heard some pretty wacky things in my time of the relationship that Jesus had with women. But he never lusted after a woman. He never engaged in sexual sin of any form. In fact, it's often said, why didn't Jesus ever get married in his lifetime? I mean, you would think for 33 years, he, he should have met someone and got married for a little, bit, little time, right? Well, the simple answer is this, because Jesus was engaged to the church. Why Christ never married? Because he was already engaged. And he was not going to cheat on us, his bride. That is why Christ never got married. He was a faithful to his bride that the Father had sent him into the world to redeem. One question that I asked Pastor Antonio that I think he was scared to answer was, did Jesus, did Jesus ever find certain women attractive? Is, is, is it a sin to find someone beautiful? Is looking at things and seeing it beautiful a sin? I don't know. Um, I do have the answer, but tell me after. Uh, the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. Of course, Jesus in his lifetime never stole anything, right? He never stole physically an item, right? But more than that, Jesus who was rich became poor for us. The one who had heaven and earth became poor for us. And when we think about the Eighth Commandment and how, how it connects to Jesus Christ, Jesus never held back either. He never held nothing back from us, meaning he didn't cheat in his life and ministry. But he gave all of his strength and all of his might to live for our righteousness and die for our sins. He didn't steal from us. I love Jonathan Edwards when he says that silver and gold, Christ didn't leave his disciples. But he left them something that the world can't have, and that is peace. Christ gave him all of everything that he has to us, including peace. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
Jesus never spoke untruth. In fact, when he criticized the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, and the chief priests, he did so in perfect measure and with truthful balance. He didn't say anything to the Pharisees that wasn't true about them. He never slandered or gossiped. He didn't even flatter his neighbor. Our Lord never slipped up with words. He never misspoke. In fact, friends, Christ did the one thing that none of us could do. He tamed the tongue. as what James commands us to do. The one thing that we can never do, that we are always messing up and slipping up. Jesus knew what to say and when to say it and what not to say. Jesus tamed his tongue. And think about the life of Christ and his perfect life of obedience. And just think about if Jesus slipped up one time, if one word slipped from his mouth, none of us could be redeemed from our sins. We serve an awesome Savior, do we not? And finally, the Ten Commandments. You should not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife or your female or your male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The one who owns heaven and earth, the one who created it all, says in Luke 9, foxes have holes, the birds in the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The one who could have easily supplied his every need and desire only received that which came from his Father's hand. Jesus did not have to covet anything from anyone. He wasn't jealous of glory from that others were receiving and that because he wasn't receiving it. Because Jesus Christ knew that after the thorns there will be a crown. And after the cross there will be a throne. He knew what was awaiting him when he ascended to the right hand of the Father. In closing, friends, what I want you to see this evening And I hope that because Jesus Christ was the God-man, you don't think, well, it was easy for him to obey the law. By no means it was not. As one of my favorite ministers says, Jesus did not cruise the glory. He didn't tiptoe to the tulips, as my father said. But he was tempted in every way that we are. He went through things as we go through things, but without sin. Jesus Christ lived the life that we could not live. And that is a life of full obedience to God's moral law. And in doing so, what does Jesus Christ do? In him obeying and fulfilling the law on our behalf, the scripture says that the law is no longer our curse, but we are adopted as sons. And now the law is our friend. The law is that perfect guide that we are to follow to holiness. The law is no longer that thing that shows us how sinful we are, but shows us how sweet of a Savior that we have in Jesus Christ. So friends, in light of this understanding that Jesus Christ fulfilled the moral law on our behalf, we aren't to walk away and say, well, there's no moral law that's binding on us. Jesus paid it all. No, rather what Jesus Christ does for us is he fulfills the law nor that we may rightly obey the law. And we do so out of gratitude. That is how we are to approach and obey the law, out of gratitude and thankfulness.
since Jesus Christ obeyed the law. And it was his, his greatest desire to obey the law. He is the man of Psalm 1 who delights in the law of the Lord. And we are to have that same attitude toward the law. But also we are to consider our Savior. And what a great Savior we have in Jesus Christ, right? And next week when we uh, look at the active obedience of Christ in more detail, we're going to see how Jesus Christ also fulfilled the ceremonial law. Because although Jesus Christ had to obey the moral law, he didn't obey the moral law like Adam or under the conditions that Adam was to obey the moral law under. What I mean by that is when Adam was in the garden, he had to obey the moral law in a garden. But Jesus Christ had to obey the moral law in a wilderness. He had to obey the moral law under the conditions of Adam's fall but also the Mosaic law. And we'll look at that next week, how Jesus Christ obeys the ceremonial law for us. So friends, let's pray. Uh, I will pray also for our time together when we partake of the Lord's Supper, um, and then we will worship uh, and dine with our Christ.